right? Hey, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, please turn to Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7 is where we're going to be tonight. And uh, the house lights will be up in just a second so you can kind of see where you're turning to. But as you are turning there in Acts chapter 7, you know, it's interesting. You know, when, I, when you get the opportunity to preach at a camp, you know, it's, it's different, right? It's kind of like a, okay, well, I'm not really like a, it's not like, you know, a one time, or it's not like it's a, okay, we're building through a series or something like that, or, or whatever it may be. Some of you, you know, some of you, I only get to see you like once a year, right? Because you either live far away or whatever it may be. Um, you know, it's funny because I also typically don't preach multiple times during staycation. I typically preach like one night, um, and, uh, but you guys have me for one more night tonight. And, um, you know, as I've kind of been working through the passage that we're going to be looking at today, I've been looking at it and praying through it. You know, there's this, there's this thought in your mind, right? Like, if I had one message that I could give, if I had one message that I could give a group of people, what would that message be? Right, like if you know, some of you, I may, you know, I may, I don't see, oh, I don't see a whole lot. So I don't know, like if, if, man, what if this was the last time you had the chance to hear from me? And if that is, if this is the last time I had you get the chance to hear from me, what would that message be? You know what I'm saying? Like, what would the message be that I would give? And of course, first and foremost, it would be the gospel. And of course, the gospel is in everything that we do. But I think that for me, what, we're gonna, what I want to talk about tonight is something that it's so easy to talk about. But man, it's so hard to actually live and to do it. You know, today you guys studied in your Bible study groups about the stoning of Stephen. If you've been in church for a decent amount of time, you've probably at least heard of this story if not, if today was your first time hearing the story, then, well, I'm glad that you're here. But there's this challenge for me, right? There's this challenge when I approach this passage. And I'm just, this isn't any of my notes. This is just me speaking from my heart to you guys. There's a, there's a, there's a challenge of, man, like, okay, what do I want to say? And then it's like, okay, well, man, what, what does God want to say to his people? You know what I'm trying to say? And half the battle of, be, of, of preaching is, is not finding things to say. That's actually not hard. If you spend any time with me, you know that I could probably talk as long as you let me. <laughs> the struggle is not finding out what to say. Oftentimes the struggle is figuring out, okay, when to stop. Or what not to say. You know, with the, with the passage tonight... I think that if you allow it to, I think that it will be something that will challenge you, encourage you. But most of all, if it's something that you put into practice, it is something that will change the way you view your life. It is something that will change your life in general. And not because I'm saying it, but because of what the Word of God has to say. See, last night we began to look at what it means for us to be faithful to Christ's call to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. What does it look like to be witnesses of Jesus to the ends of the earth? And ultimately, we kind of summarized that point down to being, man, what does it look like to live a life that makes a difference? 
What does it look like to live a life that makes a difference for eternity? See, throughout the history of the church, there have been people who have committed their lives to making an eternal difference. In this room, there are people who have committed their lives to, I want to make an eternal difference for the kingdom of God. Whether it's people who are in this room or people throughout the history of the church, they have done so in the face of hardships, tears, and even loss of their own lives or the lives of people that they know. Here in the book of Acts, we've already seen that the church is growing. We've already seen that the church has been, is vibrant. The Holy Spirit is doing incredible things. We're seeing people being saved daily. In chapter 4, what we looked at last night, we see the church begin to face opposition. That every honeymoon phase has an end. And what happens when the rubber meets the road? What happens when the church faces opposition? In chapter 5, we'll see the apostles are arrested again. And in chapter 6, we're introduced to a man named Stephen. Now, Stephen is an interesting fella. Because Stephen is not one of the apostles. He's not a pastor. He's not... A vocational minister, he is a man who loves Jesus and put his yes on the table. That's all he is. There's a tendency for us to look at these people in Scripture and to magnify them to be something that they aren't. And really what you're seeing is not that these are great men and women of God, but what it is is that these are normal people being used by a powerful and great God. While preaching the gospel and standing up against critics and those who hated his message, there arose a group of people that brought up false accusations against Stephen. They did so in order to have him arrested and even worse, put to death. They accused him of blaspheming against the temple and preaching against the law of Moses. And the, people that, and the people at one time, these are the same people who at one time would look at Stephen and say that he was one of them. These same people who at one time, as long when Stephen agreed with them, interestingly enough, when Stephen agreed with them, oh man, we're boys. But then as soon as Stephen has a message that's contrary to what they like, all of a sudden, the tables turn. Just as a side note, I just want you to know, people are fickle. People come and go as the wind, but Jesus never changes. Eventually, Stephen is seized, he's arrested, and he's brought before the council, and he's put on trial. Where have we seen this before? Stephen essentially preaches the gospel and how Jesus is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophets and the laws. And upon doing this and showing them their own sin and rejecting Jesus, we pick up in verse 54. Now when they heard these sayings, they were enraged. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus, standing at the right hand of God, and he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. 
And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Stephen would go down to be the first person in the history of the church to die for the name of Jesus. And he would shake the history of the church forever. One man willing to go all in for the cause of Christ led to the gospel reaching millions. You may not know this. We're going to get to this in a little bit. But the gospel had not left Jerusalem. The church is in Jerusalem. All the Christians in the world at that time were in the city of Jerusalem. And it wasn't until intense persecution broke out against Christians, the first domino of which being Stephen's death, to where then the Christians were pushed out and they fled. And wherever they fled, they took the gospel with them. One man willing to go all in for the cause of Christ changed the world. If the gospel could move so powerfully through the yes of one man, what could God do with a room full of yeses? Now when it comes to putting your yes on the table, when I, and when I say that, it's, it's, it's important for, me to for you to understand what I mean. When I say put your yes on the table, I'm saying you look at God. You say, God, whatever you ask of me, wherever you want me to go, however much it costs, my answer is yes. I'll do it. Whatever you ask, whatever you want, wherever you tell me to go, whatever it may be, my answer is yes. When it comes to putting our yes on the table, there are three things that we need to keep in mind that I believe that this passage teaches us. The first thing is this. The cost is certain. When we talk about people who went all in for the gospel, all in for the cause of Christ, the history of the church is littered with names. I just want to share with you two stories. One that's relatively recent and one that is like second century. I'll go with the first one here. It's a gentleman named William Carey. Some of you may have heard this name before. William Carey is widely regarded as the father of modern missions. At a, at a meeting of Baptist leaders in the late 1700s, as a newly ordained pastor, William Carey stood up to argue for the value of taking the gospel overseas to those who had never heard it. And he was promptly interrupted by an older pastor who stood and said, Young man, sit down. You are an enthusiast. When God pleases to convert the heathen, he'll do it without consulting you or me. One time while preaching a sermon on the importance of world missions, the congregation got up and walked out of the church. In the face of much opposition, William Carey went and started his journey to India in 1773, Carey began working in a factory where he passed out gospel tracts and began translating the Bible. Carey's life and missionary work came with many, many challenges. You could, I encourage you to read about the life of William Carey. 
One of those challenges was that in, the Mar in March of 1812, a warehouse fire would destroy all of William Carey's work, including a completed Sanskrit dictionary, two grammar books, and ten different translations of the Bible that they had been working on. Decades of work gone. We're not talking minutes. Decades of work gone. One of the people that questioned William Carey's decision to go to India was his own father, who couldn't fathom why his son would do this. Why would his son do such a ridiculous thing? He couldn't say, William Carey couldn't say that he was going to help with, uh, to, to help with medicine or, or to do medical work because he had no skill in medicine. He couldn't say he was going for, uh, to help with the political needs of the country because he had no experience in politics. When asked by his father, what can you do? William Carey answered with three words, I can plod. The word plod literally means I can put one foot in front of the other. That is my skill. I could put my head down and put one foot in front of the other. And it was this mindset that got William Carey back to work. Despite all the disappointment William Carey experienced, he would retrace decades of work and start over. By the end of William Carey's life, the Bible had been translated into 44 different languages. He's the, he is acknowledged as the father of modern missions and would set the path forward for Christian work in the nation of India and around the world for the rest of history. William Carey is quoted as saying the following, I am not afraid of failure. I'm afraid of succeeding at things that don't matter. That is one of my favorite quotes I've ever heard. I am not afraid of failure. I'm afraid of succeeding at things that do not matter. The second person we're going to look at, and if you've been with me over the years, you've probably heard me talk about this individual. It's a man named Polycarp. That's an interesting name. Don't name your child that. Polycarp. He was the leader of the church in Smyrna in the second century. At this point in the history of the church, there is extreme persecution against Christians. Daily, Christians are being arrested and put to death for their confession of Jesus Christ being Lord. Eventually, Polycarp would be sought after to be arrested and put on trial for, the conf for his confession of faith. One night while he was praying, he had a vision of himself. And in his vision of himself, it appeared that the pillow beneath his head had caught on fire. Upon this, he turned to those who were with him and he told them I must be burned alive when his pursuers came and arrested him he did not seek to escape but he simply said the will of God be done one man after he was arrested came to Polycarp to try to persuade him to save his own life and he said quote what harm is there in saying the Caesar is Lord in securing your safety Trying to persuade, Polycarp is an old man. He says, what harm is there in just saying Caesar is Lord and securing your safety? And Polycarp refused, and he went somewhat eagerly and was escorted into the stadium where he would eventually die. Polycarp, he was an old man, and because he was an old man, they sought to respect him by giving him the opportunity to repent from the sin of rejecting Caesar and to say 
if he would simply say, away with the atheists. And the reason they said this is because at that time, Christians were considered to be atheists because they denied the pagan gods of the culture. So he says, away with the atheists. And Polycarp pointed up at the crowds and said, away with the atheists. When commanded to deny Christ, he replied with this statement. Eighty-six years I have served Christ, nor has he ever done me any harm. How then could I blaspheme my king who saved me? When the proconsul yet again pressed him and said, Swear by the fortune of Caesar, he answered with this. Since you are, since you are vainly urgent... That as you say, I should swear by the fortune of Caesar and pretend not to know who I am and what I am. Hear me declare with boldness that I am a Christian. And if you wish to learn what the doctrines of Christianity are, appoint for me a day and you shall hear them. The proconsul then said to him, I I have wild beasts at hand and I will cast you to them unless you repent. And he answered, call them then. For we are not accustomed to repent for what is good in order to adopt that which is evil. And it is well for me to be changed from what is evil into that which is righteous. Again, the proconsul said to him, Seeing you despise the wild beasts, I will cause you to be consumed by fire if you will not repent. And this is the mic drop moment that Polycarp gives. And he says, You threaten me with fire which burns for an hour and then is extinguished, but you know nothing of the fire of the coming judgment and eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. Why are you waiting? Bring on whatever you want. Eventually, Polycarp would be sentenced to death. Witnesses record that as he was lit ablaze, he was seemingly unharmed by the flame and he appeared to be at total peace. Eventually, out of impatience and frustration, he was stabbed by a dagger, which ultimately became the thing that killed him. Now, many of us will never experience this kind of hardship when it comes to being obedient to the call of Christ. Many of us in this room will probably never go through this, but make no mistake that there are people all around the world today not second century, today, that are losing their life because of their faith in Jesus Christ. According to the Center of Study for Global Christianity, 90,000 Christians are martyred every year for their faith. Over the next 60 seconds, half a dozen will be killed for their profession of Jesus. Now here in America, you may not lose your life. But to But the call to follow Jesus is a call to surrender your life. See, I want you guys to understand something. That I am not interested in teaching you how to be good church attenders. Maybe that's what you want to be. And I'm going to be honest with you. If that's what you want to be, if that's what you want to get out of this is how to be a good church attender, I'm sorry, this isn't the place for you. And if that means it's down to 12 people and we just get real with Jesus, then that's what we'll do. I grew up in a student ministry of 15 people. This is more than I ever imagined being in a room with. I'm not interested in seeing you grow to be church attenders. I'm interested in seeing you grow to be disciples of Jesus. 
And to be a follower of Jesus is to put your yes on the table and say, God, whatever you want for me, I want for me. Whatever you say it costs of me, I will pay it. You see, many of us are fans of Jesus like we're fans of a sports team. We'll go to the events when the fellow fans gather. We'll wear the merchandise. We may even say the chants and sing the songs. But what I've learned about fans is that when the, champion, when the team wins the championship, fans don't get rings. And it isn't enough to be a fan of Jesus. There were lots of fans of Jesus. The question is, are you a follower of Jesus? Does Jesus have your yes? There are no such things as sideline Christians. And in your life, I want you to remember something. If you take nothing away, take this. To follow the call of Jesus is often difficult, but it is always worth it. As Stephen begins to preach basic truth, he's not getting complicated here. Basic truth. Verse 54 tells us that the people were enraged. It says that they, they gnashed their teeth at him. They grit their teeth. They were so angry. Now, if you go back to the previous verses, you see that the reason that they are enraged is because Stephen pointed out the fact that they're guilty of rejecting God. And it's the truth, it's this truth that sets the people over the edge because these people prided themselves on obeying the law perfectly. And Stephen is saying, no, you deny the law all the time. Now, I also want you to notice something. When Peter preached a very similar message in Acts chapter 2, 3,000 people were saved. How did that story go? Acts 2, 37. Now, when they heard this, what Peter preached, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Skip to verse 41. It says, So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Now compare that to the response of the council that Stephen preached to, Acts 7.54. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged. And they ground their teeth at him. Notice that both Peter and Stephen were equally faithful to proclaim the same truth of the gospel, but they both saw two drastically different responses to it. And I want you to understand something. You cannot control what people will do with the truth, but you can control whether you will open your mouth when the time comes. You can't control whether people will be cut to the heart and respond in faith in Jesus or if they'll be angry at you and hate you. But you don't get that choice. You get this choice. Will you open your mouth when the time comes? And let's be real. If there was ever a group that would reject the truth of the gospel, it was this council that Stephen is speaking to. These are the people that continually rejected Jesus, they rejected the apostles, and they rejected the gospel. However, Stephen still preaches all the same. And the problem that we have is this, is that we determine whether we will share the truth with someone based on the likelihood that they will respond positively to it. That's how we determine who we'll share the gospel with. Well, will they, do I think that they'll respond well to what I have to say? If not, I'm not saying it. But that's not what, Peter, that's not what Stephen does. 
Stephen knows these guys are going to hate what he says, but he still does it. Why? Because his yes is on the table. But why do we do this? I think there's a few, there's a lot of reasons, but just a couple I want to hear. One, I think we're afraid to fail. If you go to Student Leadership University with us, SLU, we, we, we have three groups going this year. We've got a group going to 301, 201, and 101. And if you haven't gone, uh, if you've gone before, uh, you've heard this. If you haven't gone yet, you will. But they ask this question at 101. They say, what would you do for the glory of God if you knew you wouldn't fail? Man, if you knew you wouldn't fail, what would you do for the glory of God? I think the reason we don't go all in, we don't put our yes on the table, is because we're afraid to fail. Remember the quote that I read to you earlier. I'm not afraid of failure. I'm afraid at succeeding at things that don't matter. And I want you to be honest with yourself right now. Be honest. How much of what you are successful at right now really doesn't matter? How much time do you spend in your life rearranging the furniture on the Titanic? Knowing that it's going to sink anyway. But you want it to look good when it does. How much of your time, how much of the things that you're successful at are things that are going to burn up? Second reason that we do this is that we're afraid of what it might cost. Some of you have lost a lot in your life and you're like, look, I've lost a lot. I'm not ready to lose this. It's like sand. When you pick it up, the harder you grip it, the more of it falls through your fingers. We're afraid that it's going to cost us relationships. We're afraid that it's going to cost us opportunity. We're afraid it's going to cost us comfort. Or what is probably more on the nose is that we know what it's going to cost us, but we love that thing too much. It's not that it might cost us this. It's like, no, I know it will cost me this, and I'm not willing to let this go. You see, I want you to understand that when we say yes to Jesus, you are saying no to other things. Likewise, when I said yes to marrying my wife, right, I've said this before, when I said yes to the married life, at the same time, I said no to the single life. If you want to find an unhealthy marriage, you'll find somebody who said yes to the married life, and they think that they can be married and still live a single life. Likewise, you want to find a worldly-looking Christian, you'll find someone who thinks they can say yes to Jesus and still yes to everything else. This doesn't mean that you have to go into hiding and become a nun or a monk the rest of your life. This means that, man, understand that being a follower of Jesus means that it will cost you at some point. And I'm sure Stephen did not want to die. Stephen didn't wake up that day saying, hmm, how can I die for Jesus today? Stephen wasn't looking to be hated. He wasn't, but here's the thing. He was willing to endure whatever he had to endure in order to be faithful to the calling that God gave him. Likewise, as Christians, we don't go out looking for fights, which so many, even some in this room, are really good at. That is not what Stephen did. That is not what Jesus did. That's not what we are called to do. We don't go out looking for fights. We don't go out looking to be persecuted. Our main aim is to bring glory to our Father in heaven, and if it comes at a cost to us, so be it. 
But here's the question. What could possibly motivate someone to be so willing to lay it all out there? Was it that he was so courageous? Was it, so, was it man, he just had something in him. Right, he had that dog in him, you know what I'm saying? He just had it in him, man. He just, Stephen just, he just had something that not everybody has. What, I, what you'll find is that what makes somebody willing to endure that is what they focus on, which brings us to our second point, which the first point is that the cost is certain. The second point is that the focus is beautiful. In the midst of Stephen's opposition, what happens? Acts tells us that he was filled with the Holy Spirit. He gazed into heaven, saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And then he says what he saw, and the people attack him even more, eventually leading to his death. What allowed Stephen to endure the suffering of this present opposition? Like, think about it. What? I mean, I've never read of a more peaceful execution of someone who is just peacefully dying for Jesus. How could he endure this? It was the fact that he was focused on something that was far more beautiful than anything around him. I've given this illustration before, but I think it's a really good illustration. See, what you'll find if you spend enough time with me is once I find a good illustration, it's hard to shake it. But I have a dog. I love my dog. She's, she's crazy. She's a crazy dog. But she has a thing. She loves socks. And because of this, we don't let her in our room because if she goes in our room, she will somehow find a sock. And then trying to retrieve the sock is near impossible. But I have figured out a strategy. The strategy is this, is that I go and I get one of her begging strips because she loves those. She just loves them. I'm not going to lie. A begging strip smells good to me too, but I'm never going to eat one. But anyway, that's totally off topic. I hold it out for her, and immediately what happens is that I show her the begging strip, she drops the sock, I give her the begging strip, I take the sock. What just happened? She was fixated on the sock until she saw something that she saw was much more beautiful than that sock. But amazing how quickly she forgets the sock when she's fixed on something she wants more. Likewise, it's the same with Stephen. It was the fact that he was focused on something far more beautiful. Some of you have endured hardships that I can't even imagine. I'm not ignorant to that. Some of you have walked through hell and back. Some of you came here tonight and, and at home your life is falling apart. You know it. You may not talk to people about it, but you know it. And really, if nothing else, this week is an opportunity for you to just unplug for a little bit. Can I just tell you something? That Jesus is better than all of it. Jesus is better than all of it. Jesus is better than the dysfunction at home. Jesus is better than the abuse you experienced when you were younger. Jesus is better than the fears and the anxieties that you have. Jesus is better than all the times people have let you down. Think about this. Friends will let you down, but God always comes through. People change, but God stays the same. People are imperfect, but God is perfect. People say they will die for you. Jesus actually died for you. I want you to understand that the presence of suffering doesn't mean that God has failed you. Did God fail Stephen? 
when you see Stephen, what does he see? He sees Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father, which is interesting because everywhere else in Scripture, what do we see? We see Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father. There's a lot of reasons that people give, and a lot of it's speculation on why, why the emphasis on Jesus standing. But I think one of the simplest things that I saw was that, G, that Stephen stood for Jesus, and Jesus stood for Stephen. The Bible says that Jesus is our intercessor, that he stands in our place, that he, when Satan accuses, accuses us and, and throws accusations and all these things at us, Jesus stands in the gap, and he says to his father, no, that one's mine. I died for that one. Stephen stood for Jesus, and Jesus stood for Stephen. God is greater than all of the hardship you experience. He spoke creation into existence with the sound of his voice, yet he knit you together in your mother's womb. The Bible says that even the hairs on your head are numbered. Matthew 10, 29 through 31, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs on your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, for you are more valuable than many sparrows. See, the reason Stephen was willing to die is because he was focused on something worth dying for. And so many of us are focused on things that are not worth dying for. We're focused on things that aren't even worth living for, yet alone dying for. You see, we're so afraid to let go of our comforts and our relationships and the things that we take pride in. And the reason is, if we're honest, is because we don't understand just how beautiful Jesus is. That's why. It's not that these things are so great. It's that we just don't really see Jesus clearly. That's our problem. We need a fresh view of who God is. We need to be like Moses on Mount Sinai and say, I won't go any further until you show me your glory. God, show me yourself. God's not running from you. Understand that God is not running from you. Jeremiah 29, 13, you will seek me and you will find me and you seek me with all of your heart. How do we get a clearer view of who God is? Well, look back at the passage. It says, but he full of the Holy Spirit. Look at that. There it is again. Full of the Holy Spirit. It was the Holy Spirit that led Stephen to fix his eyes on Jesus. And if you are a Christian, if you are filled with the Holy Spirit of God, part of the way the Holy Spirit works in your life is to get your eyes off of yourself and onto Jesus. If you want to know if it's the Holy Spirit moving in your life, ask yourself this, what is it causing me to focus on? And when we continually fix ourselves on the things around us, we're resisting the Holy Spirit's work in our lives as he seeks to get our gaze back onto him. You and I need to make a daily routine of fixing our eyes on Jesus and less on ourselves. Hebrews 12, 1 through 3. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the Father. 
The Christian life is a life that is fixed on Jesus. See, we're commanded to fix our eyes on him. And when you, when you try to live your Christian life with your eyes fixed on anything but him, you will continually be disappointed. And what I've learned is that the more you passionately pursue God, and I'm telling you, like I said last night, all I can tell you is what I've seen and what I've heard. All I can tell you is what I've seen to be true in my own life. When you, the more you passionately pursue God, the more of him you want and the more of, there, more of him there is to enjoy. You'll never reach the bottom of the bucket of God. You know, it's sort of a paradox that you're totally satisfied with who God is, but you're not satisfied with how much of him you have. That's the mark of a Christian. You're totally satisfied in who God is, but you're not satisfied with how much of him you have. It is a good thing to be hungry for more of God. 1 John 4 tells us that we love because he first loved us. So what this tells me is that my love is out of a response of his love for me. I love because of his love for me. So in order for me to grow in my love for him, I need to more understand what his love is for me. Well, what is the display of God's love for me? I'm so glad you asked. You thought I was going to preach twice and not quote a verse from Romans? Ha! Romans 5.8. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. If you want to know what is the display of God's love for me, it's the fact that while you were his enemy, he died for you like you were his friend. And now that you are his friend, what more will he do? If he died for you when you were his enemy, what will he do for you now that you're his friend? It is the cross of Jesus that is the display of his love for you. So if you want to learn how to love God more, dedicate your life to understanding how the cross demonstrates the majesty of his never-ending love, and I promise you it will never disappoint. It'll never grow old. It'll never fade. It's the beauty of the gospel and the beauty of his gospel that gives Stephen such peace. And it is us growing in our love for God by growing in our view of him that will embolden us to be willing to lay it all out there for him. I want you to also notice another thing. As Stephen is dying, he says two things. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. I don't know about you. When I read that, I was like, man, that sounds familiar. What is it? Jesus, he is repeating the word, he's repeating what Jesus said on the cross. And some will say, well, he's trying to, you know, he's trying to, you know, whatever. Okay, the man's dying. Okay? I don't think in that moment he's like, oh, I forgot to do this. Right? What are we seeing here? What we're seeing here is this, is that Stephen, the more he focused on Jesus, the more like Jesus he became. You with me? And if you want to know what you're fixing your eyes on, look at your life and ask yourself what you are becoming more like. If you want to know, am I fixing my eyes on Jesus? Look at your life and see, are you becoming more like Christ? Or are you becoming more like something else? That's my last point. 
See, the first thing is that the cost is certain. The second point is that the focus is beautiful. And the third point is this, the result is worth it. It's this death of Stephen and the persecution of the church that actually forces the gospel out of Jerusalem. It's interesting, in this passage you see, it says, verse 58, Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him, and the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. If you don't know who Saul is, you'll learn that tomorrow. But Saul would go on to become Paul. Will become known as Paul to us. He would write two-thirds of the New Testament. And this is the man who orchestrated the stoning and the killing of Stephen. And as the church was persecuted intensely and the church began to spread throughout the region, the gospel eventually reached to a place called Damascus. And it was as Saul was seeking to stamp out the gospel on his way to Damascus, what happened? God met Saul in a miraculous way. And I'm going to stop there before I steal Arthur's sermon tomorrow. But do you see this, though? It's because the people fled for their lives that the gospel went to thousands, if not millions. I would say that the reason that the gospel has gotten to you where you are in your seat right now is because Stephen was willing to sacrifice his comforts. If Stephen took that opportunity to spare the stones, I think it's safe to say that it's very possible that you and I don't even know who Jesus is. So here's the question you have to ask yourself. How many times have I deprived people of the gospel because I chose comfort over faithfulness? How many times? How many souls have I deprived of an opportunity to hear the gospel because I chose one relationship that won't even last a year? I said this earlier today, and I say this to you guys all the time. When you graduate from high school, all that you have given your life for, all of these people that you think matter so much, I'm telling you, I promise you, you will not see them again. There are some of your leaders in here are freshmen in college. They will tell you, man, I do not want to see you become successful at things that don't matter. And the church began to grow because of intense persecution. What you'll find if you ever study church history, what you see even if you study now, is that the countries where persecution is the hardest, the church is the strongest. It's because Jesus promises. He says, I will build my church. In 1949, China came under communist rule. And at that time, it was estimated that there was less than one million Christians in the nation of China. In 2010... The numbers from Pew Research Center found that over the span of five decades, the communist persecution against the church, that the number of Christians in China grew to 58 million. Most believe that these are actually too low of estimates and that the actual number is closer to 100 million. What you'll find is that the gospel has most often been spread through the suffering of his church rather than the abundance of his church. 
But I believe that what we have in America, what we have in churches all around us is Christians that have fallen so in love with convenience and comfort that we have rendered ourselves useless because we are convinced that we can have watered down Christianity and still be honored to God. And you know what's so beautiful about walking with Jesus? It's that even in your suffering, there is joy that is unspeakable. That the call to suffer is not the call to be miserable, and you would think that it is. But Paul would write from a prison cell to the Philippians, rejoice, and again I say rejoice. Many of us think that the reason we struggle with, we're lacking so much joy and we're lacking so much contentment is because we don't have enough comfort or we don't have the right relationships. But here's what I would tell you. I think potentially the reason you struggle to find joy and contentment is not because you don't have comfort, but perhaps it's because you have so much comfort that it's keeping your eyes off of the thing that will really fill you. So the last thing I have to say to you this week I'll hang out with you this week. This is the last thing I have to say from this stage during a sermon. What is holding you back from putting your yes on the table? And then ask yourself this, is it worth it? If you talk to people who've put their yes on the table, what you'll find time and time and time again is that none of them have ever regretted it. There may have come times where they thought, am I sure about this? But they've never regretted it. 